Welcome to the Unfair Advantage podcast, where we will explore the unique experiences, skills, and abilities high performers bring to bear in their field. In each episode, we will unpack the guest's expertise and insights to help all of us develop our own unfair advantage. Welcome back to the Unfair Advantage podcast. I'm excited today to be joined by Dr. Christopher Weiss, a professor at Georgia Tech. Chris, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm doing well. I'm really excited to have you here because I think your work is incredibly important in team sport and in sports organizations more broadly. But before we jump in, why don't we take a moment to have you just briefly introduce yourself to our audience and then uh, tell us a little bit about what you're really passionate about. Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm Chris. I have, uh, I'm really passionate about uh, teams and doing research in teams in various contexts. So a lot of my work focuses on teams operating in these high stakes environments. So you think about your, your astronaut teams, your medical teams, your, um, your uh, military teams. Uh, we, we look at teams during like high intensity ocean races where they're like basically gone onto ocean for like 90 days with no contact. Uh, with folks whatsoever, and and of course sports teams uh, as well. So what I mean by high stakes teams is like when the performance of the team actually has some real core repercussions on how well the team performs. Whether it's you know uh, you know a winning record over a season, um, whether it's whether they get to the next destination, referring to like the sailboating teams, or you know even if someone. Um, you know, dies in, uh, in terms of a medical team or uh, a military team. So that's really what I'm passionate about, where the dynamics between individuals matter a lot to how well the team performs and, you know, that those outcomes are especially important when it comes to um, performance. Uh, so, yeah. Awesome. I'm looking forward to unpacking some of this. So before we, we hopped on, you were talking a little bit about, you know, the ways organizational psychologists understand teams and, and how teams sort of fit together. I'm wondering if you could just kind of expand some on what you were thinking about, uh, maybe share a little bit about how you frame teams, and then let's dive into some of this cool research you've done. Sure. So the way that we approach like understanding teams is through like a what we call like an input mediator output sort of framework. So your inputs are things like um, who's on the team? What, what are their personalities like? Who's the leader of the team? What's the context in which they are um, operating in? And these uh, inputs lead to mediators. And we have two buckets of categories there. We have um, processes, which are like behaviors, right? This is everything from like communication, conflict, uh, management, monitoring, um, the system planning, um, team learning behaviors, you know, which I have a meta. So everything that's sort of like outwardly apparent, someone who could watch a team and be like, oh, right, they're engaging in those particular behaviors. That's our process bucket. We also look at it, another bucket within the mediator um, category are emergent states. Now these are like the cognitive and affective and motivational things that develop over time. These are things that you don't want to really try and get at when the team first like comes together. These are things that 
develop after they've engaged in some good communication processes. Um, and so we have like constructs within that bucket, which are uh, like shared mental models. So, you know, uh, having everyone on the same page or transactive memory system. So I know what you're doing, you know what I'm doing. Everyone has a, a shared understanding of who's responsible for what. Uh, cohesion and, and psychological safety. So people feel like they can speak up in a really, um, in a really sort of uh, intricate environment. And then we have outcomes. So your outcomes could be anything that the team has a, has a, a shared uh, goal about. And these outcomes depend on, on, on the team. So, you know, it could be winning a game. It could be, um, you know, getting to the playoffs. It could be scoring a point. Like, so the outcomes are all sort of temporarily based. Um, so that is the, the way that we typically view and study uh, teams in all different contexts. Um, so this IMO uh, framework is recursive. So, you know, everything relates to uh, one another in that bucket, but that's how we, how we understand teams. And, and it's a good way to diagnose, say what's wrong with a team. And so we can look at specific things in order to improve or develop um, if, if, if something is missing. That's awesome. I appreciate the, the background. And I think it gives us a, a helpful shared language for the rest of the conversation moving forward. You, you said something that might be a little bit in the weeds to get started, but it really caught my attention. You were talking about the two buckets in the mediators. You were talking about uh, the emergent states and the processes or behaviors. And you, and you mentioned you don't really want to start out focusing on the emergent states. Those, those might be things that come from engaging more in the process bucket. But I think what's really interesting about that, and, and maybe you could help us think through this a little bit, is I think the emergent states is where everyone naturally gravitates toward. Like that's what people think about when they think about teams. You know, if you're a coach, you think about like, how do I get my team to be as cohesive as they can be? How do I get my team to be as motivated as they can be, as connected as they can be? Not like, how do I get them to talk to each other more? Though some coaches think of that, right? Or how yeah. do I manage conflict more effectively? And so I guess I'm wondering if you could kind of tease that apart a little bit and talk about um, how the focus on the process might lead to the emergent state and why the focus on the emergent state might be somewhat limiting. Yeah, so I think it, it depends on where you're at. As he said, the ultimate goal is to probably get to those good uh, emergent states, those good sort of, sort of cohesions with one another, everyone being on the same page. But the steps to that is really having a good framework, like a, a communication network between the team, a good structure for people to talk to one another rather than focusing purely on emergent state. For example, if someone gets traded, right? They, um, do you expect them to immediately get along uh, and work within the system of whatever team they're going to? The, no, you have to have some sort of newcomer integration, which is part of the uh, communication uh, part of it in order for them to better understand the role within a team and how they're going to fit into the current system that is uh, going on that will eventually lead to cohesion and psychological safety and share mental models. But you know, when you first bring a team together, you really need to establish the sort of foundational processes that will help those emergent states develop over time. That makes a ton of sense. And so, 
I'm going to ask you a tough question. Maybe I'm going to ask you to pick a amongst all your processes here, but like when people are starting out and a new team has formed, where would you advise or what should people think about in terms of where they put their time and attention to help the team sort of form and get started? It, it has to be communication, right? It has to be developing a good and open communication network between in any sort of context, where whether you're dealing with supervisors and subordinates, um, uh, teammates and coaches, or even like veterans and rookies, like having a good communication network um, is going to be the core of everything else. It's gonna be the core of even other processes like planning or monitoring or coordination or learning from one another. If you don't have this, communication network up at the get-go, then everything else is sort of out the door um, uh, from the onset. So communication is important, but it's also important to recognize there's different types of communication uh, that happens within a team um, environment. Uh, so you have folks who will, there, there's a, a meta-analysis that look at um, different communication behaviors and how they affect team performance. And if I'm sharing the same information with you, the same information that everyone knows, that's not really effectively communicating uh, with folks. It's good maybe a little bit to um, sort of show that you have faith in what the other person has said, um, to reflect back, to show that you have a better understanding, but really you need to be communicating unique information or information that brings new information to the party, um, not things that everyone knows sort of um, already. So there's different types of communication. It's really important to focus on the right one. So what, what would really effective communication look like sort of broadly? Like what qualities or characteristics might it have? I hear some like injecting novel information or a new viewpoint, not just parroting back what's already out there, but are there other qualities? Yeah, I think um, when you're talking about the type of communication, unique information is, is always important, but um, communication is often developmental. So making sure that you're providing real developmental guidelines to whoever you're talking to and providing feedback. So it's not like, you know, get better at shooting or, you know, um, you should have done this. It's how you could do this better. So going through the processes of how to achieve the, that goal that you um, are trying to communicate to your colleague or teammate or uh, what have you. So you can't just have a, like an ultimate goal or that you want to convey to them. You want to express the steps and why you think uh, those steps are uh, important. Uh, another part of um, communicating is making sure that you are demonstrating that you're open to feedback. Uh, so demonstrating that it's not a one-way sort of dynamic, it can be uh, uh, two ways. And um, Amy Evanson has a really nice um, uh, frame, uh, construct to understand this called psychological safety. Now, psychological safety is an emergent state but there are many things that you can do from a communication standpoint to engender uh, a psychologically safe environment where people feel free that they can speak up and be vulnerable without any sort of repercussion on 
uh, either their their performance or any repercussion in like say talking bad about them. Um, so um, one way that you can do that maybe as a leader is to be vulnerable. So admit sometimes when you make mistakes or um, admit that things could have gone better or demonstrating that you can be incompetent too, incompetent in some ways too, um, and bringing in that sort of like safe environment that's okay to discuss mistakes, um, even my own uh, as, a, as a leader. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I mean, I think, you know, you said a couple of things that I think are, are highly relevant here. So one is you kind of talked about like the, the mentor-mentee relationship or supervisor-supervisee relationship as like a dyad that exists within the team and those relationships have to be managed. And then there's also the, a bit, of, I guess what I'm hearing at the end here is sort of the role of the manager, leader, coach, whatever it might be in shaping the environment that actually allows for the good communication to take place and then these other emergent states to come about. And so when I'm listening to you, like it all makes sense to me, but those pieces, I, I think it's really hard for people to get there. Like, I think it's really hard for coaches and leaders to acknowledge a failure or express some concern. Um, and oftentimes you see this play out in coaching where, um, you know, a coach will repeat something over and over again, and then a player won't get it. And now it becomes the player's fault. And, and not an exploration of like the way the coach is communicating or some breakdown between the two. And so I guess I'm curious, you know, if you found in your research anything that's been really effective for coaches or leaders to model ways of communicating, um, you know, other things they can do to sort of open that dialogue up in a way that doesn't necessarily reduce their credibility but allows for that two-way street to really exist? So that's a really great question. Um, I'm gonna pull from some of our research on those ocean racing teams. So to give a little context, there's these like, I don't know, 12 teams that, that go out and do these um, ocean races around the world where they are essentially on their own for, prolonged periods of time and there's a skipper uh, on board that that's the uh, you know de facto leader of the team but everyone has their particular roles um, one of the things that I think allows for a more psychologically safe or, or or open culture to emerge is not necessarily what the leader is is saying in particular situations but what they're doing so the way that these leaders create the uh, these open environments, it's just doing what needs to get done oftentimes. So if there is some sort of crisis on board, the leader's the first one there to, to do the work and tie the rope. There's some, maybe somebody else's responsibility, but you know, they're the first one there to do what needs to get done for, for any sort of situation. Um, and you can transfer that sort of environment to say uh, the business world by providing say backup behaviors if you're running up uh, against the deadline or you know showing that you can um, engage in certain um, uh, this is not the right term but if you just stepping up and demonstrating leadership no matter what the the scenario 
um, providing those backup behaviors and providing developmental support. I think that's one of the primarily primary ways that people can can convey it other other than you know direct uh, communication. So that's that's tremendously helpful because it, it gives people things that they can do. And so you know maintaining your positioning as a leader, stepping almost like showing and not telling and being willing to fill in where where people need can be one way to show I think probably you're part of the group right you're part of the team you're not above the team different from the team separate from the team like the team's success is all interdependent a bit here um and so I want to maybe dive deeper a bit into some of the high stakes team stuff that you've done and, and obviously the medical team one I think in the grand scheme of stakes is probably the highest stakes um yeah. although you can correct me if I'm wrong Maybe just, just talk to us a little bit about um, what you expected to find when you started looking at high stakes teams and high stakes medical teams and what you've learned as your research has developed. So one of the, one of the, one of my interests is focused on resilience and well-being. And when I first came here to Georgia Tech, I wanted to, uh, Emory's right, you know, right next door. And I want to look at these medical teams and what are the triggers in their environment in which they feel like they need to be um, resilient to. So what are the things that are, are, are causing them to be resilient? And when I, when I go initially into these hospitals, I'm thinking it's going to be, well, patients dying, right? Code blues or, or um, some other sort of what we would think typically would be these traumatic sort of situations. But that hasn't necessarily been the case. Um, what has typically been the case is it's these more organizational factors, these structural factors uh, that are like, I hate this about my everyday life. This is really hurting my well-being and I'm not able to effectively perform as a, as a team member because of these structural issues. One example was that one of the physicians I interviewed said, if I need to print something out, like print a prescription out, their main complaint was that I had to send it to the pharmacy department, the pharmacy department had to print out, and then I had to go pick it up and then bring it back to the patient. Um, so the, those are the, that was kind of striking to me as the primary stressors in which the teams felt that they needed to be resilient too. It wasn't part of their situation. Um, it was the environmental circumstances. And funnily enough, we find that in military teams um, oftentimes too. So when a military teams go through this extensive um, resilience training um, to deal with these high intensity acute triggers, so these really big things that happen once, and they're really good at dealing with those particular things. What they're not really good with oftentimes are these low intensity chronic triggers that may be part of the, the structural um, organizational sort of dynamic rather than you know, some particular event uh, that happens. And so that's led my research to look at not only say, how are teams resilient, but what are they being resilient to? And how do the behaviors that they um, sort of engage in depend on what they're being resilient 
too. Um, so that that's unpacking it a little bit, hopefully. It's it's great. Well, it's it's helpful to hear because a lot of what you just described fits really neatly with some research done in the UK by a guy named Chris Wagstaff and some of his colleagues who have found something really similar in sport, you know, particularly in Olympic sport, which is that, you know, the things that we as support staff, coaches, people inside the system might think are most stressful for the athletes, you know, playing in a championship game or competing for a gold medal, that's actually not it. You know, what is really most stressful is like hearing about the financial difficulties of the firm or being unsure about how you're going to get from A to B or media pressure, these more nebulous things that exist at a higher organizational level or not so nebulous things that are more like organizational systems processes designed by somebody so far removed that they don't have a sense of what the impact is. And so the experience navigating the space is a lot of just overcoming these tiny barriers all the time. And it, it almost is like death by a thousand cuts. It is. Yeah. And, and so I guess like, I don't know that I have a question per se, but like, why do we think that that happens, right? Why do we think that this organizational level stress is, is as big as it is? And what can people do to start to massage some of that out? Yeah, so I mean, the organizational organizational stressors aren't necessarily seen as organizational stressors by the people who are employing those policies, right? They have no idea what the people are going through. And they're just like, yeah, it'll be fine. They need to fill out this particular financial pay, paperwork to get reimbursed and a particular thing. We'll use this system. We'll provide basically no training at all because we know how to do it. It's the same sort of barrier that happens when people don't know the rules on the team. Like, have you ever been asked to do something because maybe um, you're seen incompetent in one area and, and so you delivered quickly on a thing and now you're that person on a team? Like everyone goes for sure. through for that particular thing. Yeah. And they don't realize everything that you did like prior that, that, um, that how much work actually went into it. Like if I ask a tech person to design a website for me, I'm thinking, oh, that's easy. You can just do A, B, and C, and then it will be done because there's a thousand websites. Uh, that's the disconnect I think that happens oftentimes between the organizations and the people that employ them. They don't see that whatever structural policies they have in place are having this detrimental effect on the workers because the um, they don't understand that it is a lot of extra work for the workers and they don't know there's a a bit of ambiguity in 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 how uh, these things should get done uh, that organizations don't have the, the mindset yeah it's almost like a, a failure to take someone else's perspective and sort of zoom out and, and see what goes into it. So I, I guess let's let's dive in a little bit more to one of these, these medical teams. So I guess like help us paint, paint a picture for us. Like what kinds of problems are these medical teams working on? Um, and what have you seen from them that sort of separates the really elite great teams from the not so great teams? So, I mean, I could say that in 
for a lot of uh, contexts, um, things that separate the really great teams from the, um, you know, not really uh, great teams. One of the things that happens in medical teams is Medical teams are not like the standard office teams that we have that we have typically research. So with the office teams, you kind of like have your research and development team. They're together for like all together for six months or something like that, or some other office team. They're together for a prolonged period of time. And so they have time to say develop those good communication networks and those emergent states and and um, perform effectively over time. Um, many of these medical teams are not like that. Um, in fact, I'm gonna bring Amy Edmondson back into here. She, she um, introduced this concept of, of teaming. So it's like when these team of experts, when these medical professionals need to come together for a particular event, they don't know necessarily um, each other really well, um, but they will, team together for a particular incident, whether it's like a medical code or, um, or, or some, some medical procedure for a short amount of time and then depart. They'll still have to work together as a team, but they don't have that sort of background, which puts them at a disadvantage for having those emergent states in place. One of the ways that they uh, compensate for this and, and what's, I think, um, indicative of a really high performing medical team is that when you know each other's roles going in, so you have that pre-existing knowledge of who knows what, how do they work and who's responsible for what in this particular situation. If you have those things set in place but through say professional norms or maybe working with someone, the same person over and over again, um, then that can really, um, lead to an effective uh, teamwork and teaming. I'm gonna give you a, a personal example. Um, we have three kids. Um, my wife has had um, an epidural every single time that she's you know, given birth. The first time it didn't work um, at all because there's no sort of understanding of whose roles, like as a team expert, I'm sitting, she's in labor and I'm watching like, man, they really are not communicating effectively. Why is that? Uh, and so the anesthesiologist comes in with my wife basically, you know, ready to give birth and it was ineffective. Let's just say their performance on that particular aspect of the birth was ineffective. Um, for a second child, um, actually I'll go to our third. Our third, the epidural is fine on the, on the second child. The third child, the um, the nursing team knew exactly how the anesthesiologist worked, what their preferences were. And so they set everything up beforehand. Um, and the anesthesiologist was in and out. In like maybe five minutes, the epidural went great. The, pregnant, the, the birth went great. Um, even better than our, our second uh, child where the birth actually worked. So having that sort of knowledge um, before you get together, uh, I think is, is very important and having really clear roles and responsibilities um, is important as well. Yeah, I wanna stick on the role clarity concept for a bit because I, I think 
you know, in some ways, the way you're describing medical teams is maybe not as stark in sport, but it does happen, right? You trade players, you draft players, players move around, you have new people come in, new people go out, whether you're college or pro, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. The group is new basically every year. And, and oftentimes, I think the group that can sort of gel most quickly tends to have a bit of an advantage because they start to figure out their unique sort of identity as a team and play that out faster and, and learn as they go um, from the successes and the failures that they have in a way that, you know, a group that doesn't have that clarity might still be figuring out just one piece internally before they're even worrying about the external sort of performance. So I bring this up because I think one of the things that, you know, often happens in sport is people try to like perpetuate competition, insecurity, um, some role murkiness a little bit in an effort to try to bring the best out of people. And sometimes maybe it works. I don't, I really don't know. I'm curious what your take is on that. So I think it all depends on how strong the culture is uh, in terms of the, whether or not ambiguity can work well. Um, take the Spurs, for example, like if a player gets traded to the Spurs, right, they know they're going to have to really buy into like a system, whatever that system may be. So they're abandoning their old roles of responsibilities uh, behind more readily because they know the strength of that, um, how that sort of system and culture has worked um, over time. And there may be more in that culture, more definitive roles assigned to them. So there is a sense of role uh, clarity once they uh, arrive. Now, I'm not going to name any teams that may not necessarily have the best sort of culture for, um, you know, uh, for that sort of environment. Um, but, you know, when people are, when other players are maybe demonstrating that they have other priorities than teamwork and, 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 um, they're getting multiple messages from say uh, veterans and the coaches that that can that I don't think that ever helps bring out the best um, in the uh, in the players or coworkers in that case. It's it's always bad to have like two leadership messages coming down to you as say a, a subordinate or rookie or any anyone in in, in those situations. Um, so I, I think it really depends on your knowledge of the culture uh, going in before and what makes a good sort of transition, regardless of the the culture that you're entering is your openness to change, right? I mean, this is the same thing in like military teams. They train individuals to be a particular um, mode of speciality, right? And um, you may go on to a team in which half of that really doesn't matter and you need to learn how to fill in another part of the role so people are more willing to fit within a particular climate or an environment will have their sort of roles clarified more more quickly um i think uh, rather than being ambiguous yeah that makes that makes sense to me i mean i think that the two pieces that are resonating are 
this idea that you've got to have a clear message about what the role is and what the expectation is. And I think that can be a place where sometimes there's a mismatch between like what a player wants their role to be and what the coach sees their role as. And so that might be a place where you struggle to get some of that acceptance you're talking about as the second factor. But there are also times when, um, you know, maybe it's more of a cultural level, but, you know, when coaches or, or executives will say one thing and then do another um, or say the same thing to multiple people, right, which, which also then gets a bit confusing. I want to use, looks like you have something to say, so, so please jump in. Yeah. I mean, you're, it's also the, there is also a contrast between what you're incentivizing, right? So you have maybe incentivization in in a contract, some individual say goals that are very different from say what the coach needs from you in terms of the goals and the roles that you need to take. So that's another, whenever, that's why was trying to refer to a little bit with like having multiple sort of competing goals or competing leadership sort of demands uh, on you that that could really kind of not allow people to have a really clear role when you have two different sources telling you to do two different things. For sure. And and I think that's a great point. And we see that play out often in in sport, right? There's a um, motivation to win some sort of record or title because it leads to a bonus, but it may not be the best for the team. You know, th- those kinds of things happen. And sometimes they're funny stories and sometimes not so funny. But um, I, I want to zoom out one step to culture for, for a few minutes. And then I want to talk about being a great teammate as we kind of close out here. So you mentioned the culture and kind of cultural expectations. From the work you've done, what makes for a great culture? A, a great culture doesn't happen say overnight. Um, so uh, a lot of you know executives may have this sort of um, propensity to be like, all right, we need to change the culture in this team. How do we do that by the start of the next season? That doesn't happen. A great culture is both created from top down and bottom up. So top down, whoever's at the top needs to have a vision of what the culture should be and components of that uh, culture and then still say whatever policies or norms uh, that would create that culture within that workplace, whether it's sports or in the business world or, um, you know, ocean racing teams. But uh, on the other side of it, they ha- there has to be buy-in from the workers uh, the people who are maybe lower down in the organizational chain. And, and in those workers, you have to have champions both behaving in line with those norms and advocating how those norms will be the best for the team or organization or the workers themselves in the long run. So you have to have those cheerleaders at the lower levels of the organization because without them, um, it, it's not going to, to change. And, and so it's really a dynamic sort of communication between say the higher level of executives or the, you know, the coaches or supervisors or whatever, and ensuring that the workers' voices are heard and that there are, they are considered in whatever culture they're trying to develop. Um, importantly, that takes time. And so um, it's, it's just in being patient sometimes, I think is the best approach to developing a good uh, culture. 
How important do you think it is for some of these cultural, you know, vision, policies, processes, structures, like how explicitly do those need to be communicated for people to sort of get it and for the culture to take shape or do they not need to be and people can figure it out? I think that depends on the message that you're sending. Um, Sometimes when there's a giant cultural shift, there needs to be more sort of definitive norms and more definitive signals of that particular culture shift and, and most importantly, why they're shifting. So you can tell like an organization we're gonna be shifting to a more tech forward sort of approach in, in, in the future. There, there needs to be explanations why for the employees if they, if they hadn't been tech forward previously so they can understand what these changes mean for them and why they should value whatever changes in the norms um, are occurring. So often, I think more often than not being explicit in not only that there is a cultural shift, but why this cultural shift is, is happening. Um, many organizations will institute policies that, dem- that will have, um, say, behaviors that are indicative of um, cultural change. So we want everyone to start taking 15 minute walks in the middle of the day because we care about your sort of well-being. So things like that can also be helpful of being explicit about the behaviors that are in line with the norms that you're trying to instill. That makes a ton of sense to me. So as a team and culture expert, when you walk into a new room and you're being asked to first sort of get a sense of how this team is performing or how this organization is operating, what are you looking for sort of at a cultural level that signals to you an organization's health or, or not so health? So I, I think it really boils down to leadership. Uh, so one of the things that we've, we've not necessarily come to, one of these things that people have come to a strong conclusion on in, in the literature is that there's a difference between leaders and leadership. So, you know, leaders are people who are formally appointed to hierarchical positions in the organization, right? Uh, assistant coaches, coaches, supervisors, CEOs, what have you. That doesn't necessarily mean that no one below them can engage in leadership behaviors. Uh, so, I think that if I see a team or organization where everyone is sort of backing each other up and engaging in um, behaviors that are indicative of leadership, generally speaking, like giving people uh, intellectual stimulation or focusing on particular individuals' needs and wants, um, I think that is indicative of a, a, a good um, organization is the first thing I look for. Uh, one of the things about leadership is about you need to adopt different roles at different times. So um, you can think of um, what's relevant to, to my research is say like a interdisciplinary science team where you have like a biologist, a physicist, a psychologist, a, a public policy person. 
at different points during our time working together, we will need a different leader. When there's a problem to be solved that relies on my expertise, I should be the one to step up. When there's a problem that result um, that needs to be solved by you know the public policy person, then I should be able to relink it, relinquish control of say the team at that point and allow that other person to to step up. So I I, I think those are the things I'm looking for when I go in to, to check on the organizational sort of dy team dynamic health is is whether people are, are doing what needs to get done, they're backing each other up and also stepping back when they're no longer needed. That was awesome, thank you. I mean, very informative and I think gives us all something we can look for now when we're around our organization to get a sense of, you know, how healthy and high performing is this culture. I wanna ask one final question about culture before we shift to teamwork because I'm listening to you talk and, and one of the, the pieces we've put out um, on the blog that's gotten the most attention has been something we wrote about politics and the way that organizational politics undermines culture or is part of culture. And I'm, I guess I'm wondering if you could just speak to, you know, from what you've learned in your research, how, how politics, politics can help or hinder a team and organization's performance and, and if there are any sort of, I don't know, political red flags people should look out for in assessing organizational health? Yeah, so I think the, the, the finding that, that sticks out to me is that, um, that, that I can recall most readily is politics are fine when the goals are aligned. So if someone has like a, a personal agenda to accomplish a goal and that goal also happens to be aligned with um, what the organization wants to achieve, it often in, in a, in a cross-sectional meaning like a one-shot way, like just looking at it within that particular goal, that works out fine. When there's misalignments, then, then um, that's not great. However, there's, there's not, to my knowledge, a lot of research on how these things unfold over time. So um, acting in, a, say, maybe a, a political way may not necessarily um, be conducive to a good culture and a good environment in the long run, even if um, uh, you may align at particular points. Like a broken clock is right twice a day. It's, it's the same sort of idea. Like if you look at it only during those particular times in which the goals are aligned, then politics are great. But over time, it's gonna be wrong or harmful to the organization uh, in the long run. I think that being more genuine and not being politically motivated or at least being transparent about your motivations to engage in whatever behaviors will be good for the organization in the long run and for yourself. I, I love that because I think, you know, it doesn't, you're not telling people not to be political. You're just saying be transparent about what your politics are. And, and I, I think there's, I think this is one of those bigger organizational forces that undermines and stresses people out. One of those things that people need to be resilient to, often yeah. in ways that they didn't anticipate um, you know, before joining an organization or didn't have the full scope of what it might be, you know, as they moved around in an organization. And so 
I think we're finding more and more, at least on the sports side, office politics between staff and coaches really matters to players. I mean, it really matters and it really affects their performance and it affects how they feel showing up to work. Yeah, it's important to have that good culture and and trying not to infer political motive behind other people's um, actions. I think that that's a sticking point as well. I love it. So you're an expert on teams and teaming and teamwork. And I think one of the things coaches and people in sports are trying to, to look for in a more concrete way is like, what does it mean to be a great teammate? And I'm wondering if you could just share what you've learned about what makes for a great teammate. I, you know, we've, we've touched on this a bit already. I think what makes a great teammate is, is having this sort of learning orientation about everything that you do. Um, so being able to realize that you may not know everything, you may not be the most skilled at everything, even though you've been told maybe your entire life that you are. Um, being able to learn about the particular um, environment and the roles that, that you're going into and adapting to those roles. So coming into whatever situation, whatever team uh, that you are with this, I want to know how I can best fit here. And maybe the things that I was, my roles and responsibilities from my previous environment don't one-to-one -one transfer to this new um, environment. Um, so being learning focused, I think is one of the most important things, being able to, that allow you to adapt to your new situation and thrive in that uh, situation, no matter the context. And how would you advise people to think about the sort of balance between like fitting in and maintaining your individuality? What's the sweet spot there? I think that understanding that no matter what your role is, is that it's valued. And that can come from say the, the coaching staff or the supervisors that everyone has a role on the team and this is your role and it's very important uh, to the success of the team uh, in its in entirety. Um, I think that, you know, maintaining your individuality works when your goals, individual goals match with the team goals. When that's incongruent, then um, your team is going to, to fail. Uh, and, and we've seen that time and time um, again, uh, so I think emphasizing from maybe a cultural standpoint, the, that everyone has a role here, everyone's part of the team and that your role in particular is important to our success. Um, I think that is the way to not lose yourself, uh, in the, the team context. That's brilliant. And I think uh, you're right. We've seen it play out time and again in, in sport and certainly other places. As we, as we close out from, I'm going to ask you a hard question, I think, from your big range of research you've done and the projects you've worked on, what's one you know, finding or lesson that you think deserves more attention 
and hasn't been talked about enough, but would be relevant for anyone that wants to be part of a high-performing team? Jeez. One, one finding or lesson that, that I think, I, I really think it is breaking down these hierarchical sort of notions of, of, of leadership or leaders is, is the most important for success. Having a flatter organization, especially when you're in a, a sports or a, um, you know, a small business environment is going to be the most important thing um, for you to be uh, successful because that allows the team and the organization flexibility in, in getting stuff done. No one's confined by their pre-existing norms and um, you know, roles and responsibilities. They're flexible to back people up when, the, when they uh, need to, allows them to think outside the box um, oftentimes. So I think breaking down a lot of the hierarchies that are established within the organization and sports sort of environment is, is important in many circumstances. Not all, but many. Dr. Chris Weiss, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for joining to share. Before we wrap up, where can people find you, follow you, and learn more about your work? Oh, I'm on uh, Twitter. I think my handle's uh, Dr. Chris Weiss. Um, Facebook, we're, uh, we have uh, uh, the Foundation Lab is our, our handle there. Um, and you can go to my website, uh, www.christopherweiss.com to learn more about me and the research that we do. Thank you so much for joining me and joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unfair Advantage podcast. You can learn more about the work we're doing helping high performers develop their own unfair advantage at our substack at unfairadv.substack.com.